The human race has been speculating on the meaning of dreams for as long as we've been dreaming. Those deep reflections of the subconscious mind, a random firing of neurons that your brain struggles to make sense of. They're mysterious, and for the most part opaque, hinting at some hidden part of your mind deep in unknown corners of your brain. We still don't know why we dream. Did you know that? Scientists have been able to explain how it happens. They can point at the brain scan of a sleeping person and say, this person is dreaming, but they can't tell us the purpose of it all. Why does your brain do this thing each and every night, whether you remember it or not? What purpose does it serve to your body to cook up all these strange images, these surprising scenarios, these terrifying scenes? And why does the brain fool itself into thinking it's all real? I learned to lucid dream when I was very young. I can remember being seven or eight and discovering I had some amount of control over my dreams if I concentrated hard enough. I could fly, I could transform, I could wake myself up if things got too scary. And that's where the stories this month come from. My own struggles with my brain and what it does at night. This month on death, dying, and other things, two stories of dreams and their consequences. In the first, beyond the lucid dream, a man ventures too far into his own dreams. In the second, the strange dream of Mr. Bartlett, a man's recurring nightmare starts to affect his appetite. Death and dying are the threshold between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Phantom Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. Venture far enough and you will reach a wall. A wall of thick marble. Smooth stone impossible to climb. Swirled with a million colors that don't exist in the waking world and constantly changing. I taught myself to lucid dream when I was a kid as a defense mechanism. Under assault from constant nightmares, my young brain, desperate for a way out, began to teach itself the telltale signs of dreaming. Unreadable printed text, clocks shifting time between glances, breathing through closed mouths and pinched nostrils. Dreams turn into a playground when you know you're dreaming. You can fly instead of fall or grow a hundred feet tall, and the nightmares get a little less scary when you know they're not real. Of course, not every dream is a lucid one, and some nightmares are still intense enough for me to wake in a puddle of sweat, but those crippling terrors grew far less frequent when I could wield dreams against themselves. 
Once you realize you're dreaming, the facade falls away. Walls reveal themselves to be cardboard, and clouds nothing but cotton balls suspended by string. The people populating the dream world reveal themselves to be actors all played by one brain, and your body nothing but putty, ready to be molded by will alone. It's what, once I had grown tired of being a god in my own small world, drove me to explore outward, to press on, away from the dream, to more fantastic places. A dream is a surprisingly artificial thing once you stray too far from the makeshift setting. I started small, in my youth, testing the limits. I had often heard that if you die in a dream, you die in real life, and having seized control and taken responsibility for myself in the land of dreams, it seemed far more likely a possibility. Just outside the dream's immediate setting, things already start to break down. Rooms begin repeating. Entire cookie-cutter streets repeat the same shops. If you watch the sky long enough, the same clouds fly by. Getting in a car and heading out of town, the same hills roll on and on until even those break down, getting flatter, leveling out. Trees stop growing out there. Then grass. Beyond that, once you've reached the end of the highway, you arrive at a place I called the corners when I arrived there all those years ago. Fields and fields of geometric shapes, straight edges that border great rectangular canyons, canyons that are an ease to navigate when you're the maker of makers. Then the landscape flattens completely. For miles, featureless and colorless, the empty, I called it, because I couldn't find another word. The light falters here, too. The sun, fake as it is, blinks out of existence some miles into the journey. The blue sky fades next. It's so easy to get lost here, get turned around, and you could be wandering for hours. But if you keep on your path, that's when you'll find it. The wall. So tall you can't see the top. At least not from the ground. It won't budge if I push it. It won't move if I will it. My powers over my dreaming falter here, too. No flying. No growing. I'll tell you what that wall is. It's my prison. It's my warden. It's my judge and my sentence for the crime of conquering my dreams. It's my own mind's way of punishing me for learning to control it all those years ago. Again and again I've returned to try to circumvent the wall that's keeping me in my dream world and been unable to. Until now. Now I have a plan. I'm not going to fly over it. I'm not going to knock it down. I'm not going to drill through it or any such nonsense as that. I don't know why it had never occurred to me before, either. Perhaps it was the way the ground feels beneath my feet in the dream world, like an old carpet begging for a steam cleaning. Next time I dream, I'm going to bore straight down, straight underneath the thing, straight underneath its mocking stature and out the other side. When I next conquered my dreams, I arrived at the wall with a shovel I had willed into being and bent down at the base of the monstrous marble warden to place my hand against the ground. Here, my mind revealed another of its tricks. Beneath my feet I saw soil. I smelled soil. 
I expected soil. But when my hand touched the ground in that moment, it felt much more like concrete than dirt. Cold, hard, and smooth, despite its appearance. I stood up and looked at the bits of dirt now stuck to the palm of my hand. Brushing the dirt off, it felt more like grains of sand. I pitched backwards with the shovel and stabbed it downward into the ground at the base of the wall. But when it struck the surface, the tip of the shovel bent inward and a sharp metallic clang reverberated up the wall. I'd need something heavier, but try as I might, I could not summon anything more useful into the environment surrounding me. I brought a sledgehammer with the shovel on the next attempt. A completely smooth cylinder of steel attached to a perfectly round wooden handle. I found many dream objects appeared this way, platonic ideals of themselves, perfectly replicated by my brain, featureless and likewise blemishless representations of things. Swinging that sledgehammer against the ground at the base sent an unbearable crack reverberating up the wall off the sky and back to my ears, and when I struck again, the burst burrowed further into my ear canals and began rattling around inside my head. I nearly dropped the hammer from the shock. Several moments were required to recenter myself, to find my balance again, but when I did and regained my composure, I was able to inspect the ground where I had placed two well-aimed hammer strikes and found that the solid facade showed signs of cracking. It was painful and slow, but when I had finally cracked through that near-invincible shell and peeled back the cracked shards, I looked down on something pink and pale, the shade of chewed bubblegum. When I kneeled down and pressed my fingers into the pink mass beneath my feet, it sprung back, a product of its sponginess. I could dig my fingers down into it and pull handfuls of the pale stuff out, like dirt from the ground, but it had none of the same texture. Where dirt crumbled and spilled, this substance held together surprisingly well thanks to its tacky and pliable qualities. If I wasn't alarmed by the appearance of this pink substance, I became quickly alarmed when I realized, through a careful moment's observation, that this substance was also a substrate, home to millions of small things the same color as the spongy substance they made their home in, squirming their way in and out like so many tiny worms. Most of them were crawling out of it and stretching their tubular bodies toward me, seemingly excited by my presence. After a moment, both the exposed surface beneath the hard shell of the ground and the small pile of pink matter I had scooped out with my hands looked like two pink medusa's heads, wriggling, writhing toward me. I took a step back and dropped to my knees again, lowering my head to get a closer look, and the worm-like things became more excited, speeding their convulsions, lashing toward me. Lashing is probably too harsh a word for their behavior, as it didn't seem to be malicious from my vantage point. Straining is probably more apt. Groping might be better. They gave the impression that they were reaching out, desperately trying to touch me. I lowered my hand just out of reach of the ones protruding from the small pile, and they were thrown into a frenzy 
dancing this way and that. I lowered my hand into their midst, and they instantly calmed. Their desperate groping turned into a caressing, gently tickling my palm, wrapping themselves around my fingers. I lost sight of the skin of my hand among the mess. I awoke with a headache, bearable but throbbing and unnatural. It took a palmful of ibuprofen and two cups of coffee to cure it. And once I had cured the pain, the pressure behind my left eye didn't recede, like an index finger inside my skull, pressing on the back of my eye. My work suffered that day. My hand broke through the surface, and I knew I had reached the other side of the wall. The air was biting cold and deadly still. My fingers stretched and wiggled against the thick atmosphere of this new world, and then the air itself started leaking into the little crevice I was occupying, falling through the gap between my wrist and the ground around it in thick ribbons of smoke. I coughed when it reached my lungs. It was heavy, like the air in a hardly used attic, and smelled like so much dust. I balled my hand into a fist and pulled it back down through the ground. Then I punched up again, slowly enlarging the hole until I could get a look at what lied beyond the wall. The smoky air continued falling and obscuring my vision for several minutes until it gave way and I got a clear view at the sky of this new place. Rippling waves of purple and green clashed into each other like I was submerged in some technicolor sea and was looking up at the surface of the water, windblown and turbulent. Lines of bright neon blue straight as an arrow shot through my vision periodically, like shooting stars on a clear night. At regular intervals, every thirty seconds by my sloppy counting, a low and far-off sound like a single note hummed by a man in his fifties passed over the hole. This was the thing that terrified me, that caused me to freeze in that damp, stinking hole. To recoil. To stop enlarging the hole I was to use as my escape, and reconsider my plan entirely. I could still taste the musty air as I started the shower the next morning, and I turned the tap off several times because I had convinced myself the rushing water was hiding that far-off hum. When I finally stepped under the water's spray, I noticed I couldn't feel the water's temperature. From hot to cold to hot again, I swung the shower handle and felt no difference. I left the knob on the hottest setting there was and watched as the steam billowed up around me. I watched my skin get pink and then red and then deeper red like a cooking lobster. I washed and noticed I couldn't smell the lathering soap couldn't smell the shampoo I rinsed through my hair. I turned the water off and for a moment let the water drip off my body. Toweling off, my routine suddenly felt meaningless. The headache was back again and growing by the moment. No amount of pain medication or caffeine was helping anymore. I dressed, though that too seemed meaningless, and walked to my living room with the purpose of sitting on my couch turning on the television set, and doing nothing. As I took the first step into my living room, I tumbled forward, tripping on something unseen, and flung my arms out to catch myself. 
I couldn't, and so instead fell and fell for too long. The lights went out around me, and what I finally impacted was soft and spongy. I looked around at the deep pink wriggling mass surrounding me. The worm-like creatures reached out to caress my skin. I looked up and saw a limited view of the marble wall. I looked forward and saw the tunnel I had dug leading away from me. Every thirty seconds, that terrible hum would just barely reach me, funneled to my ears by the tunnel in front of me. I grasped hard on some of the worm things, using them to climb the several feet back up to the safe side of the wall, to the dream side. I felt the overwhelming desire to return to its safety and predictability, where I was God and the tricks I had learned in my youth still had power over my dreams. I grasped the lip of the hole I bored into the ground of my dreams and hoisted myself up out of it. Bits of pink matter clung to my skin and clothes. I brushed them off and straightened up, ready to make the journey back to my dream's center. The cars I had brought here were gone. The tools I had stowed were gone too, and while these two facts filled me with a mild panic, what I noticed next filled me with that hopeless dread you only feel in those few moments in life where something collapses irreversibly. Those catastrophic moments in life that are so often communicated by unexpected phone calls or late-night knocks at the door. In front of me, where for years I traveled by highway across the strange landscapes of my mind, now lay devastated. Cratered by holes infinitely deep, or by cliffs too smooth to climb, by infernal fires and raging floods simultaneously, ravaged by my actions, no doubt. I tried to wake up, tried all the tricks I learned when I was a child, tried waiting, nothing worked. I had lost count of the days I waited there at the foot of the wall, when I finally decided that venturing forward, beyond the wall, was more preferable to spending any more time watching my dreams both incinerate and drown. The hole on the other side of the wall was just as I left it. The heavy air from beyond the wall was still rushing into the cavern I had carved into the pink substance. The sky still undulated with purple and green and was still streaked by those electric blue lines. And that humming still built and then ebbed on a 30-second loop. I reached up and the wind again bit at my skin. I grasped the lip of the hole with the fingers of both of my hands just as the humming reached its crescendo and began receding. The crawling things that made their home in that subterranean pink suddenly sprung to life as I began to lift myself up and out of the hole. They shot forward and grasped at me with a quiet desperation, but as they did, as they wrapped around my wrists and ankles and fingers, they began breaking, snapping in half with ease and falling to the floor of the cavern. When my eyes emerged from the top of the hole, my view was blocked by a thick layer of fog clinging to the ground. At least three feet deep, but collapsed here where the fog had fallen into my tunnel, but not replaced itself. 
befog, whether truly or by some trickery of the brilliant green and purple light from the sky above, was a dark, gross green, like the lawn of some haunted house on Halloween. By this time the humming was again growing to its climax, and I waited until it was again receding before climbing the rest of the way up into this new world. As my feet found a place beneath my scrambling legs, the fog seemed to fight back, to push me around. While my eyes conveyed to my brain that this fog was ethereal and fleeting, what my body told my mind was that this fog was far more solid than it appeared, and it shoved me around like waves on a rough day in the Pacific. I straightened and gazed into the endless space in front of me, beyond the wall. The size of eternity struck me thoughtless. It was far, far bigger than I could have ever imagined. The dark, uniform infinity stretched on for miles, for days. It opened itself up before me. 180 degrees opened itself up to 270 degrees and then 360 and soon more. The wall behind me was no longer visible in the constantly unfurling space above, below, or around me. And then I saw it. In some corner of the eons there, I caught glimpse of perhaps the only reason for that space to exist. Me, and no mere facsimile, no mere resemblance, but me in another place, me in a second place, me in two places at once. I suddenly understood the grave reality of that place beyond the wall. I now stood, my mind beginning to unravel as the green fog of eternity danced around my waist. I gazed upon myself, strung up by the ankles on some massive infernal machinery. Wires and tubing and beams held great hydraulic arms. Monitors glowed, flashing lines and lines of some indecipherable communique. My wrists were bound, likewise, below my inverted head. The great machine twisted, contorted my body in a million impossible ways. And that humming, the regular humming, presently built to another crescendo and revealed its true source. My giant mouth, moaning out in a pain that would never end. If you happen to miss it, I released a short film I made online this past Tuesday to celebrate Halloween. If you did miss it, check out my Twitter feed. You'll find it there. Mr. Bartlett started dreaming of the basin of water when his family first moved into the house past the train station. Each dream was the same. Mr. Bartlett found himself alone in a large and empty room. No windows or doors marred the smooth walls. No furniture was in his way. No lights could distract him. The sole feature of this large room was the simple stone basin carved out of some light stone and placed in the center of the room. Walking up to the basin, 
Mr. Bartlett would peer down into it and see the crystal clear water. The sight of the water would trigger in Mr. Bartlett an overwhelming thirst, and he would be compelled to cup his hands and scoop handfuls of water into his fiery throat. The water, as it ran over his tongue, brought the flavors of his favorite foods. Pizza, nachos, cheeseburgers, rich and full foods whose tastes stimulated his appetite. Salty foods that drove his thirst further into an overwhelming and unstoppable desire. And still Mr. Bartlett's cupped hands would deliver gallons of water into his desperate mouth. The basin, for its part, would remain miraculously full while Mr. Bartlett's stomach grew distended and deformed from the quantity of liquid flowing down his throat. Between futile gulps, he would gasp for breath and look down on his ever-expanding stomach. And then, when his stomach began to quake and his flesh began to tremble, he began to fear for his body's stability. Inside, he would begin to feel the tearing, feel the rupture start in his stomach as it finally stretched to the limit and gave way. He would feel the tear ripple through his abdomen like a zipper, traveling through the layers of muscle and fat and skin as the gallons of water searched for an exit. He would see the skin of his belly pull, see the stretch marks form as the outer layers of skin weakened, and Mr. Bartlett would cry out in pain, and then wake in a puddle of sweat, in his bed, next to his wife, before the worst of it would happen. Those mornings after he dreamt this dream, Mr. Bartlett would skip breakfast, usually his favorite meal, and instead drink a single cup of coffee before heading to work. His co-workers would always remark on those days how off he seemed, and he would always deflect, saying he just wasn't feeling well. Lunch those days would be a small salad, and he'd eat with his family for dinner, but would only eat a small portion, and his teenage son would always remark on it, and again Mr. Bartlett would deflect, saying he just wasn't feeling well. He'd never told anyone about the dream, about the empty room and the stone basin and the water that tasted like all of his favorite foods, and his horrible fate. But, on one such night, some hours after dinner, when Mr. Bartlett's wife asked him what was bothering him, why he'd been sick so often, and if he'd like her to make a doctor's appointment for him, he said that no, it was just a dream that he kept having, a dream that was violent and disturbing to him, and when he had one, it always put him off eating. When Mr. Bartlett had the dream again that night, and awoke in a pool of sweat, it surprised and disturbed him, for he had never had the dream on two nights so close together, and certainly not on two consecutive nights. He had his cup of coffee that morning, but skipped his small salad for lunch. The thought of food, any food, turned his stomach. He pushed his dinner around his plate like a picky child, and excused himself when he gagged at the taste of the pasta they were eating. Again that night he had the dream, and this time didn't wake when he usually did. He dreamt straight through the desperate gulping and growing belly. He dreamt through the quaking flesh and the splitting skin, and he dreamt through the painful cries. 
He watched his belly split open. He saw gallons of water spray out of his abdomen, spreading viscera and sinew across the bare floor. He fell to his knees and watched the carnage grow. Then he woke in his bed and skipped even the cup of coffee that morning. Mr. Bartlett only lasted through the week. Soon, even the taste of water repulsed him. His skin became sallow and loose. His family begged him to see a doctor. And when he collapsed and was rushed to the hospital, it was far too late to save him. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The stories, both Beyond the Lucid Dream and The Strange Dream of Mr. Bartlett, were written by me, too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Scratchy Sheets and to Sleepless Nights. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Phantom Podcast Network. Be sure to check out all the other great shows. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. been listening to the phantom podcast network on downrightcreepy.com follow us on itunes and soundcloud for more creepy shows